Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I want to bring in Dan Fuss. I am so excited to uh, to speak with him. He is vice chairman of Loomis Sales, a uh, very respected bond manager over the years who has made a lot of right calls. I am so pleased to have you here, Dan. Uh, I want to start with longer dated U.S. government bonds because duration levels uh, have reached the highest on record. Rates are going back down near their record lows. You're seeing people pile into the longer dated debt. Uh, you have uh, Jeffrey Gunlock coming out and saying it's the worst possible setup versus history. Do you agree? Well, uh, my history doesn't go all that far back. It goes <laughs> pretty <laughs> far not, back. I'm not meaning to imply that you can no, you know, no, pick out the history a, books, hey. but I'm just, you know, from your perspective, do you think that the long bond is poised for a big fall? A big fall, no. What I do think, however, is I think interest rates are on an upward track right now. The Fed is raising short rates. Short term, yeah. And that gradually does feed out the yield curve. Now, if they do this for a long time, eventually, based on history, the long end of the curve sort of bends over. In other words, long yields will be lower than the 10-year Etc. So, when the yield curve bends, it normally bends at the long year, uh, long end, and if yields keep going up, then, at least the way it used to be back, way back, uh, the peak on it pulls in. But something else is going on, uh, and we do have money flows into the country from elsewhere, and we also have something else I don't understand. I understand part of it, the liability matching at the long end for the corporate-defined benefit plans. I mean, we're that's important business for us. And so the money is coming in. Um, now, that's easing off a bit, but when stocks were really up there, it made sense to go, say, sell the S&P 500 and go out and buy long investment grade corporates if you can't get what you want you buy the long treasury and then you know hope to swap just to be clear this is pension plans in particular that are looking to lock in their gains so that they can uh, provide right for their well what they're doing this is most nearly all on the corporate side uh what they're doing is their liability matching in other words, the, here's their liability, and that's, that's a double-digit number in terms of duration. And so let's buy some long corporates against that and then get this volatility off our income statement and off our balance sheet. Dan, I wonder if you could speak to the issue of liquidity in <clears throat> bond markets and what this means specifically for hedge funds that focus on fixed income. Okay, uh, let me find the short way to do this. The liquidity in the most of the fixed income market is good. It's actually a little better than it was from, uh, the last time I was here visiting. All the way from treasuries on down through investment-grade corporates. Once you get to high yield, though, however, 
it starts to shift a little bit. And the liquidity in high yield and the lower edge of investment grade also is, is there for the on-the-run issues. As you get off the run, then liquidity uh, is a sometime thing in the high-yield area. And once in a while in the lower edge of investment grade. So you can't count on it. Above that, you can normally count on it. And one thing that used to worry me a lot uh, were the ETFs. I worry far less about them now in the investment grade on up. I think they're actually a good thing for liquidity most, not all, but most of the time. But but with respect to high yield, perhaps uh, it, it's a it's a little bit of a dicier prospect. Uh, is right. what I'm hearing from you. You know, I I want to just uh, go back. You were saying, you know, you seem pretty sanguine about longer term bonds, just based on the fact that pensions have been going into them and locking in those yields, as well as the yield curve dynamic as the Fed tightens the short end. Uh, but. You know, there are a lot of other areas that people are worried about. People have been piling into emerging markets debt. People have been piling into high yield debt. Do you think there are any danger spots right now that you personally are avoiding in debt markets? Yes. (laughs) What are Uh, they? (laughs) uh, Well, uh, the long end. Uh, Over the last couple of years, uh, it's been pretty well publicized. We we, our average maturity in the Loomis sales bond fund, the biggest of the funds used to run around 13 years, not the average maturity, not the duration, the average maturity. Um, and now it's about six. It was six and a half and then quite recently brought it down to about six. Uh, that's, that's a huge difference. That's, uh, and that's because I think the trend of rates is up. and Longer term even. Yes. I don't expect the yield curve to invert for quite a while. Now, you say, well, in that case, Dan, how come, uh, you know, long-end prices are going up at the moment? Yes, that's true. They are. Have you contrasted with a year ago? Oh, hmm, good point. Okay. Uh, Same all the way out the curve. The curve has definitely flattened in treasuries, and spreads of everything else against treasuries have been narrowing. So you say, what, what's going on? Well, uh, more buyers and sellers, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it's not the way to bet. I think the Fed governors and regional bank presidents in their speeches have made it very clear, data-dependent, rates are going up at least two times more this year and maybe three. In, in 20 seconds, do you think that the longer end is going to suffer as the Fed unwinds its balance sheet? Yes. Okay. That was shorter than 20 seconds. <laughs> I've got 15 seconds left if you'd like to elaborate. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it, it, it will actually be felt more in the intermediate area. All right. Thanks very much. Dan Fuss, is always uh, great to have you with us. He is the vice chairman of Loomis Sales. They're based in Boston, of course, home to Bloomberg 1200. And uh, he is one of the managers of the Loomis Sales Bond Fund. They've got $14 billion in assets.
We wish Matt Tucker a happy birthday, not for himself, but for his fund. He is head of North American fixed income iShares strategy at BlackRock, and he helped found the suite of fixed income ETFs that have dominated headlines and dominated bond market trading for years. We want to talk specifically about the 10-year anniversary of HYG. This is the biggest high-yield bond ETF out there with almost $19 billion of assets. Matt, we are so glad that you are with us. I want to start with uh, being the black sheep of the fund management complex for so long. So many people picked on HYG as sort of a harbinger of doom in bond markets, that it was going to destroy things, that people were going to withdraw money all at once. Have those dark clouds lifted? Do you feel like much more embraced by fund managers and investors alike now? Well, thanks, Lisa, for having me uh, this morning. So, I, you know, if I think about the history of HYG and kind of how it's really matured over the years, I do think there's been a shift. I think initially people saw it as just an index fund in a high-yield market, and there were questions about how the fund would react in different stressed markets, what happened when investors might rush in or rush out of the fund. But I think we've seen so many different crises, you know, since the fund was launched 10 years ago and so many different stress events in the market. You've got a lot of really good data now you can look at and say, well, what did, what did the fund actually do? What has HYG actually done in these markets? I think people realize that, you know, it actually performs kind of as you expect. You know, it, it trades like the high-yield market. Um, so it's used increasingly by a lot of institutions who might not have reached for it, you know, even five years ago. It's now becoming a pretty core part of a lot of institutional high-yield portfolios just because it's another way to invest in the market, another way to get access to liquidity. Let's talk a little bit about some of the characteristics of uh, HYG, the iShares IBOX High Yield Corporate Bond ETF. And I wonder if you could start with this idea that uh, over-the-counter to an exchange-traded fund. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, this is the, the core innovation behind bond ETFs in general. And it's something that I think people lose sight of when they look at just ETFs broadly and look at equity ETFs. You know, the, the equity ETF was a very interesting idea. You took a bunch of securities, a bunch of stocks, which trade on the exchange, and you stuff them into this thing called an ETF, which is also on the exchange. Um, that is important. has a lot of benefits to it. But I think the fixed income ETF was really transformative because you took this over-the-counter bond market, which is very hard for a lot of investors to see, hard to invest in challenges with information transparency, liquidity, and you put it onto the exchange where it's accessible and visible to everybody. And I really do think that is a transformative change. I mean, you now can see a portfolio of high-yield bonds trading tick by tick throughout the day, um, which is a pretty crazy concept when you think about it relative to the rest of the high-yield bond market, where it's really hard to get information about transactions that are actually taking place. Yeah, and HYG uh, certainly was innovative and has been rewarded for that as uh, it has become really a node of activity unto itself within the high-yield market and really dominated a lot of the trading. I want to ask you, though, about some of the choices that BlackRock didn't make, that iShares didn't make, in particular leveraged loans, because we have seen, uh, you know, with throughout the fixed income space, we've seen a proliferation of ETFs, and we have seen some try to get into the leveraged loan space, including Invesco with their PowerShares senior loan portfolio. It's a $9.2 billion fund. There clearly is a lot of demand. Why has BlackRock not created a fund like this? Well, you know, we have, you know, about 80 products on the market. You know, we've got funds to give you access to a lot of different segments of the market. It, we just didn't feel like it was prudent to launch a loan ETF. Um, you know, BlackRock has a big loan mutual fund business that we run. Um, and I think that the real question we asked ourselves was, well, you know, if you have an asset class like loans that – Really, it's not really – those aren't even securities, right? Loans are basically, you know, actual bank loans. Those things cannot be in-kinded, meaning that let's say everyone wants to leave a fund. If everyone wants to go and leave HYG tomorrow, HYG can actually in-kind all its securities out, 
give them back to investors. There's no liquidity risk that's worn by the fund that is not presented to investors. Um, that's not the same thing in a market like loans where you may not be able to actually liquidate all your securities. So we just kind of looked at it and said, you know what, there may be some risks in some stressed markets that a loan ETF could present. And we didn't feel like that was consistent with how we think about our platform. Are you concerned about the increase in proposals for active ETFs and non-transparent ETFs and the potential for this innovative, very simple model of create and redeem and taking something and putting it uh, in in something that's transparent and able to trade uh, daily like a stock? Do you think that that this new kind of element to the market could end up changing the image of ETFs, which has so far been been fairly pristine. Well, I do think we're seeing an evolution in ETF and kind of what ETF means. Um, you know, for a long time, ETF meant index fund, right? And it meant index fund. It generally meant a fund that had this in-kind creation redemption. And to your point, pretty much every ETF in the market fit that description. But we've already seen over the years a lot of variants come in on this, you know, whether it's, you know, funds that use commodities as opposed to securities, whether it's funds that employ leverage in some way, funds that are actively managed. I think what needs to happen is the market needs to get more sophisticated about subdividing the ETF asset class and thinking about different types of funds. So maybe not everything is an ETF. Maybe there are things out there that we would describe as an active ETF or as some other use some other term to help really specify the type of exposure it gives an investor and the risks it presents to the investor. Matt, I wonder if you could speak about the use of HYG or indeed other ETFs, but specifically HYG, for hedging, uh, for portfolios, for long managers or short managers who want a liquid instrument, whether it be the option or the actual uh, underlying in order to hedge or in some way mitigate the risk in their portfolios? Yeah, this has, I think, been a really popular usage we've seen and a growing usage of HYG in particular as a high-yield hedging instrument. I think if you look at an investor, say, in the equity market, they're very comfortable with the idea that there are liquid futures markets that allow them to get exposure to you know, whatever segment of the equity market they want, right? That doesn't exist in fixed income, right? In fixed income, if you want to think about hedging instruments, you've got treasury futures, which don't really track high-yield very well. You've got credit default swap indices, which have their own basis or performance difference versus the high-yield cash market. So HYG has really filled a void in allowing people to go out and trade an instrument, which actually has a return that resembles the high-yield cash market. And you can buy it and go long, the ETF, and we've seen that. You can also borrow it and sell it short, much like you would do a stock, you know, borrow and, and short sale. Um, and there's even an increasing options market on HYG. So you can think about different option strategies to be right. used as hedging. So I, I think this has actually provided a use case that investors needed for a long time and just didn't really have a, a product for. So how big do you think the uh, high-yield ETF complex can grow to, asset sort of management-wise? Uh, you know, it's really difficult to forecast. I think we're running right around $40 billion right now in terms of U.S.-listed high-yield ETFs just across different, you know, flavors, different cuts of the market. Um, could that get bigger? I think it could. But, you know, I, I, you know, so could HYG be, instead of $19 billion as it is about now, you know, could it be 20 or 30 I think definitely. Um, but I think what you're actually going to see grow more rapidly is the trading volume on the ETF. And we've actually seen this through time, is that as the fund has grown and more investors have used it as a hedging, as a liquidity vehicle, the fund turnover has been increasing. I think it's the turnover you're going to see really grow. The assets will grow, but I think it's really the volume and adoption by investors which is going to really be uh, the big driver going forward. Thanks very much. Matt Tucker is head of North American Fixed Income iShares strategy team for BlackRock, helping to manage more than $17 billion. 
Let's turn our attention now to Apple uh, and a legal battle that Apple faces from Qualcomm. And here to kind of give us the details is Shira Ovide, our technology columnist, Bloomberg Gadfly, which of course is our fast commentary section of Bloomberg. You can follow Shira on Twitter at Shira Ovide. So Shira, tell us about Qualcomm claiming that Apple uh, has made threats and has lied to regulators. What are they making threats and lying to regulators about? Yeah, this is pretty uh, pretty juicy stuff. So let me just turn the clock back to January that Apple basically kicked off this litigation, basically saying that Qualcomm, which makes very essential technology for basically every smartphone, every phone sold in the world, uh, Apple basically said that Qualcomm is unfairly abusing its, its uh, market power to overcharge customers, including Apple, for use of its wireless technology. Uh, every phone that's sold, or most phones that's sold, Qualcomm gets a cut of the sale price of that phone, regardless of whether the, the phone is using Qualcomm's computer chips or not. And Apple basically said, you know, the way that Qualcomm uh, charges for its patented technology is unfair. And uh, Qualcomm overnight basically said that app this litigation from Apple is bogus and that... Um, Apple kind of misled regulators um, who are also looking into the same issue and how Qualcomm charges for its computer chips and, and technology. So stock traders seem to have voted on who they agree with because Qualcomm shares are down uh, more than 12% since this litigation was first kicked off, whereas Apple is not down 12%. So is that is that an accurate portrayal or are traders sort of overlooking something? I I think it's it's less about which company might win if this litigation can go to trial and more about the risks for each company. So Qualcomm, I mean, look, if it Qualcomm loses this case, if the case goes to trial and Qualcomm loses, you can see a scenario where Qualcomm's essential business model is at risk. And so that's what you've seen in the share getting price Getting people reaction. to pay for intellectual property. Correct. Getting people to pay for intellectual property, which is uh, generates the majority of Qualcomm's profit. And so th- that's what you've seen in the stock price reaction. It's just this risk to Qualcomm's business model. And uh, if Apple loses, the risk is, is lower. Can I just say, um, there was a story about Apple's initial litigation where uh, uh, Apple's CEO, Tim Cook, said that the situation was analogous to someone buying a sofa and then charging that customer a different price depending on the price of the house that it goes into. Is that a valid argument? I, I don't know. I mean, the, Apple's not the only person to pick on this particular business approach by Qualcomm of charging uh, a patent royalty based on the total cost of a phone rather than the component cost, right? So I'm sure there's going to be lots of scathing analogies back and forth about sofas or whatever other living room furniture there might be. Look, this is a business dispute. Putting aside all kinds of high-minded analogies, this is a business dispute. Um, Qualcomm has a business model that it wants to protect. Apple's Revenue and profit margins are under pressure like they never have been before, and it's trying to reduce the costs that it pays for components of iPhones that can make more money. Business dispute. Well, I I wanted to just pick up on that theme because the backdrop to this is there are companies which depend on Apple orders for a significant portion of their business. I'm thinking today about the drop in the shares of Dialog Semiconductor in Germany down about 14.5% because there's a rumor or there's a thought that maybe Apple is going to go out and 
create their own chips, which they have done in the past. Does that uh, really kind of cast a shadow over all this, that if Apple decides they're going to make their own chip, then, you know, Qualcomm can do whatever it wants with that Snapdragon. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a whole cottage industry of of suppliers to Apple and other smartphone makers that are highly dependent on Apple for business, right? And that's what you see when you have these relatively small companies or even a big company like Foxconn. Even the specter of losing business from Apple sends the share price down. And the same thing happened to Qualcomm. Um, Apple, in its latest model of iPhone, used chips from Intel, Qualcomm competitor, in some a handful of... of um, of phones, and that was something when when that first got announced that sent down Qualcomm's share price. Now Qualcomm is not a tiny uh, component maker like Dialog, but look, you it is it is dependent on Apple for business. So does Qualcomm have any leverage here? Does it have leverage? I. I mean, because basically there are other like Intel, Apple could just go to Intel to make the parts. They, they uh, could. You know, and, yeah. That's... Or, or Apple could just say, look, we're going to leave you unless we unless you allow us to pay so much less for for your parts. Qualcomm's mobile technology and chips are pretty essential. I don't know to what extent um, Apple would be able to completely shift away from Qualcomm if it came to that. I, I think Qualcomm does have leverage just because of the power of its technology and how essential it is in in mobile phones. Qualcomm uh, has been the target of other uh, regulators, uh, notably in South Korea. Tell us what happened there. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, this is not an unusual fight that in South Korea, in China, in the U.S. with the Federal Trade Commission, the regulars are looking into, have been looking into similar issues that Apple is alleging, right? Which is, again, Qualcomm kind of abusing its uh, its market power to use its intellectual property to get customers to pay more. Um, and, you know, the, the question about... Uh, places like South Korea and in China, too, is are the regulators kind of carrying water for local uh, companies, right? So Samsung is obviously one of the largest and most powerful companies in South Korea. And so the question is, did regulators kind of go after uh, Qualcomm's business model to help Samsung? Just to give us a sense of how much money is at stake. How much money is at stake? (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit unclear. So uh, we don't know exactly what um, Apple pays Qualcomm for each iPhone sold, but it's probably like tens of dollars per phone. And when you're talking about the scale of Apple, right, 300 million iPhones sold every year, it's a lot of money. Shira Ovide, thank you so much for joining us and explaining things uh, in clear terms without even using, you know, sofas or lampshades or anything else. So uh, Shira Ovide is a technology columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly, which is our fast commentary group here at Bloomberg and is terrific. I'm going to just throw that in there. Uh, Anyway, but it's a fascinating debate, and it obviously has uh, a very big standing on a huge swath of business that, frankly, has been driving a lot of growth in the U.S.
regulatory reform and Dodd-Frank legislation. What's the future for it in Washington and how will it affect banks? That's why we have Frank Sorrentino. He is the chairman and the chief executive of Connect One Bank. Assets under management, more than $4.5 billion. They're based in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. And you can follow Frank on Twitter at Frank3, as in Roman numeral 3. All right, Frank Sorrentino, tell us about Dodd-Frank legislation. How will it change, and how can banks take advantage of the changes that you foresee? Well, thanks, Lisa and Pim. And so Dodd-Frank obviously was written in haste in 2010 uh, to solve what was thought to be or was a financial crisis uh, here in the United States. And a lot was put into that bill that really wasn't well-baked. It took a number of years for all the regulations to, and I think yeah, even as of today, they haven't all been written. And so we don't even know what a lot of uh, the regulation is going to look like. Uh, I think only 60 or 70 percent of the bill has been uh, written into regulation. And so as you can well imagine, um, all banks were thrown into one bucket. Regulation was set for you know banks pretty much of all sizes. And so what I think we're seeing today is a much calmer mood relative to bank regulation. And I think we need to segregate the smaller community banks and mid-sized banks from the largest money center institutions and tailor regulation uh, based on those financial institutions and the risk appetite for each of those types of financial institutions. And it's not just size, right? There are banks that are $10 billion today that could potentially be much riskier than a $100 billion institution that has a much more simple uh, business plan. And this is something that even some of the current regulators or as of a few weeks ago current uh, have even acknowledged that community banks have gotten disproportionately hit by Dodd-Frank and that this needs, I mean, even Daniel Tarullo has come out and said that. I'm wondering how how quickly do you think that some of these provisions could be rolled back, given that Dodd-Frank itself took years and years to even get written, let alone get implemented? Well, it's not going to happen by executive order. And we need Congress to have uh, the want and the desire to do this. There, you know, as in any political discourse, uh, there are those on both sides who have differing opinions about what can or can't be done. And with the agenda that's in front of Congress right at the moment, Uh, I think this is one of the top three or four priorities, uh, but I'm not sure it's the top priority at the moment. So I think we'll see. I think we'll see it in stages. I think we'll see some simple things be done sooner than later. And I think that would be good. I think, you know, changing some of the changing some of the the caps, whether it's the 50 billion dollar threshold for SIFI institution, the 10 billion dollar threshold for when the CFPB starts to, you know, regulate institutions, uh, some of those asset based uh, numbers and, and, and this differentiation between community banks and the larger money center banks. I think we'll see legislation around that move quicker. I I don't know if that means this year or next, Uh, but certainly there's a bill in Congress today that, uh, that, that they're looking to do just that. So how much better would your bank's earnings be if some of these rules were changed? It doesn't really, uh, it wouldn't impact a bank like Connect One Bank all that much. We have a very simple business model, and we're sort of in that sweet spot right now. We're way below the $10 billion uh, threshold at $4.5 billion. And Connect One Bank has a fairly simple model. We take in deposits in our local market, and we make loans. We don't do a lot of other things that uh, really step over the line. There would there may be some compliance cost savings. Uh, a lot of banks are complaining these days about the cost of, of, of uh, compliance component. Uh, within the institution and what they've had to put in place relative to the regulation. So I think there would be some savings there on the expense side. As far as uh, your bank goes, I'm wondering if you could
tell us about the health of business? Because I know you got a background in construction, so construction lending is, is important. And uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you see uh, the pricing of, uh, of money for those kinds of projects. So today there's availability for you know construction projects. Um, there has been some pullback in the marketplace, you know, just relative to pricing expectations going forward. The threat or the or the the outlook that uh, interest rates are rising. Uh, although you know, I sort of have a mixed view about that going forward. Um, well, then tell, the, tell us about that because I mean, I, I keep asking myself, well, gee, you know, will 25 basis points really crater a project? No. Um, I think I think to the extent that interest rates are, are up at 25, 50 basis points, uh, that's fine. The, the the problem we're sort of heading towards, though, is that the long end is not moving, is not cooperating with the short end. And as you know, banks make their money based on a you know the slope of that curve. And if it gets flatter over time, that's not great for banks. When will your bank or has your bank started to pass along the higher rates that we've seen in the front end to depositors? So again, it's it's not it's not that simple a question to answer. Because a lot of banks um, haven't. Well, and this is becoming an interesting sort of pressure right now. When so will they be forced to? So as as rates have gone up on the short end by 50 basis points over the last six months or so, the rates on the long end have actually come down. Right, rates were as high as 260, 270 not too long ago, right after the election. Uh, they're now down to 230 or so today. Um, so what's actually happening is there's been some flattening in the curve. And so banks are not able to pass those savings along. If we see, bu- if we see the, the curve steepening, I think you will see, and both are going up at the same time, you will start to see depositors start to benefit from that. Thank you so much, Frank Sorrentino, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Connect One Bank uh, in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, with about $4.5 billion under management. Should I say Frank Sorrentino III? <laughs> I, I should say Frank Sorrentino III. Uh, talking. Well, it just makes it easier on the Twitter handle, right? Well, yes, Frank, yes. Well, Roman it just rolls off. Three, though. <laughs> There's an S right. in there, too, Pim. Oh, all right. <laughs> Anything all right. else? Any other middle names we should add? Uh, this, is a, this is a fascinating topic, though, and, and it is important to, uh, to keep track of. So we really appreciate you taking time with us, uh, Frank Sorrentino. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.